So, uh, good evening. I find myself a little delighted to have the subject of tonight's talk. Somehow it feels appropriate for me. The factor of dependent origination that for tonight that comes after samadhi is the knowledge and vision of things as they are. Can people hear okay? Loud enough? Louder? A little bit louder? So, uh, is that a little bit better? Knowledge and vision of things as they are. So, um, it's always great to discover how things really are when our thinking, or when things are often different than what we think, right? And so many times in my life I've thought one way to discover that it's actually different. And uh, one of the marvelous things for me to discover is um, that people are different than what I thought. Like when I have a little bit of conflict with someone, and then um, I've learned um, that it's, it's kind of ridiculous, not a ridiculous word, but a waste of time to have conflict with someone who's not present. <laughs> because um, chances are that the person who's in my head that I have conflict with doesn't exist. And I have this whole thing going on, the person, the person. But then I meet the person, invariably, I meet the person, it's, you know, the person's different than what I thought. And as I get to know the person more, it's different than what I thought. And it slowly starts seeing the person for who the person is. And usually, many of the conflicts I find myself in, little disagreements and stuff, tend to fall away when I see the person as they actually are. So knowledge and visions of things as they are is certainly a way of ending our conflicts with the world. And that's part of the function of this, so we can live a life without conflict. You might have disagreements with people, but uh, we're not in conflict anymore with reality. Or more important, we don't look, we find not to be in, find out how to not be in conflict with ourselves. So things are seldom as we think, and one of the things that's not what we think is the very expression "things as they are." The Buddhist Pali word is yata buta, and the grammatical form it takes it's a past participle, and literally, if you translate it literally into English in a way that's kind of cumbersome. But literally, it's not things as they are, but things as they have come to be. And all we ever know is things as they come to be. We don't know how things are. Because nothing, there's no things that are. There's no things that is. Uh, our reality is a constant process of becoming, unfolding. It's a process that arises in the moment. And nothing stays the same, like a wave. You know, you look at the wave, but by the time you point to it, it's already moved on. It's a different wave. and um, it's, um, Reality is a constant 
renewing of itself into the present moment. This place that we call the present is um, uh, the wave of what is coming to be washing across the blank canvas of the future. The wave of the becoming of reality of this moment washing across the great expansive white sands of the future that's there to receive it. And to often the way we relate to many th- to time to things, this is how it is. We freeze for a moment. We stop. We, we we lose track. We're not present. We're not available to see the next moment, the next arising. And a lot of our thinking about reality is retrospective. Something happens, and we think about it, and uh, we're kind of lingering behind, kind of behind the curve. But uh, to be really present, and this is one of the great secrets, maybe you shouldn't know, is that we teach you over and over again, be in the present moment, be in the present moment, see how things are. It's impossible. (laughs) You're always going to miss it. It's always already happened by the time you know. And it's happening again, or it's flowing along, flowing along. Things as they are, things as they've come to be. So, um, this is the, really the turning point of the transcendent dependent origination. Because it's seeing the earlier conditions are kind of setting the conditions in place that are useful and supportive to really have a, a quiet, still, focused mind that can begin seeing things as they are. And, um, and now when we really have a deep penetrating insight, then um, uh, our life begins to change. The inner dynamic of transformation begins to now to unfold. So that process will begin, that transformation with the tomorrow night's talk uh, that's called disenchantment. But you have to be, you have to see things as they are in order to break the spell of a, the allure of how the world lives and, you know, caught in that, that web of how things are. So it, it's helpful to get disenchanted, to break the spell. First, you have to see things as they are. Now, in this transcendent dependent origination process, one way to appreciate how it's useful and why we're teaching it would be, imagine that uh, you were lost in a big, big jungle. And you tried for days, weeks, months, years to find your way out. And you went all over this way and that way and round and about. And, and one day, kind of seemingly by accident, you stumble out of the jungle and you're free. That's good news, right? However, uh, it's good for you, but because you didn't learn the path out of the jungle, it was just an accident, you kind of ran, walking randomly around, you cannot, be, you cannot help yourself if you ever fall back in the jungle again. Or you cannot guide someone else out of the jungle. So what's helpful is to, even though it's possible to stumble out of the jungle of 
your conflicts, your struggles, your life, it's good to begin to tease apart the different elements of it, the jungle of life, so it doesn't just seem like random accident that you suddenly are relaxed or happy or feel free or, you know, but to begin to really understanding what, what is the path? What are the signposts that lead you out? So uh, we take our time <clears throat> in this practice. Sometimes it's really good not to be in a hurry to get enlightened because you want to kind of start getting a sense of how does this work? How does my mind work? How does this process work? How can I tease apart the different elements of the inner ecology? Many people don't understand why they suffer. They don't understand what to do about it because the inner ecology of all these mental processes of our life are all in a tangle and big and you know, just kind of swirling around themselves. It's hard to tease them apart. But to slowly begin to tease them apart, to see the, each one, to see the different processes, how they work, is, provides us the map, provides us with the, the trail, the path out of the jungle. And so one of the signposts is these 12 steps, signposts of uh, trans- uh, liberative dependent origination. So coming to be curious and interested how things are, what are things really? If I kind of give it a respectful look, to look again, reality deserves a second chance from you. Look again, what is this? What is this experience? So this is a process of interest, of looking more deeply. What is this? And if it's true that it's not what I think it is, what is it? And, and what am I supposed to do with thinking about it if it's not what I think it is? What, are, what, are, what are other alternative is there besides thinking my way out of thinking? So, um, samadhi, last night's talk, is one of the great conditions that helps us to slow down and still the mind. And as the mind becomes stiller, we, be, we can begin to see and hear, feel, uh, experience life more carefully, more in detail. What's going on really? If we decided to use a leaf blower in here right now, you wouldn't hear the frogs. You know, a lot of noise at a cocktail party, you wouldn't hear the frogs. But the frogs in this silence seem quite loud. The... Um, so the, quieting the mind down so that there's not so, all this noise in the mind so we can see more clearly. Stilling the mind so it's not so uh, uh, it's not cloudy or not uh, agitated helps us to see more clearly. But even, even if it's just for a few moments, it doesn't have to be a big deal. Um, but another way of talking about samadhi in this process of learning to see things as they are, uh, I like to think of, of as be, uh, taking a few moments to be willing to be receptive, to be willing to open up to this experience, to be willing to allow what's emerging to just emerge in consciousness and awareness. And uh, remember some days ago I talked about taking the practice in small small chunks, small segments. So, you know, just take a few moments to open up, be willing to experience this, maybe without thought, just experience, just feel it, sense, and then be willing to do it again to be willing to open in a, with a quiet mind. What is this? Feel, sense, is a big part of this samadhi thing. One of the reasons why <clears throat> stilling, quieting, settling the mind is so helpful 
is that um, all the noise in our mind begins to settle and we see a, a better picture of what's going on. And it's very common for people to be caught up in their concerns. And when, they, when we're caught up in our concerns, it's very difficult to see how we're caught. But as the mind quiets down, we start seeing there isn't just what we're caught in, there's also how we're caught is also going on. As, as, uh, and so that how, how we are is very important. So I'll give you an example. So we have, we have this wonderful striker here. It's one of the biggest bell strikers I've seen, um, you know, in my kind of limited life, probably bigger ones. And, um, you know, and it's at a very great spiritual center, spirit rock, and it's really a sign of great spiritual authority that I get to hold this. And, um, and so, I, you know, this is mine. <laughs> and I have it now. You know, this authority thing is important for me, right? You remember from the last talk... <laughs> And, uh, and so, you know, I have to hold it tight so John doesn't take it from me. You know, or, or, um, or now I'm concerned you're, you're laughing at me and I use it to point, you know. But, you know, but, and, and, um, and, but, you know, I do, I, you know, this whole striker thing, you know, I hold on to it, I use it, I, you know, try to make my point to some people. It's very useful. But until I calm down, slow down, not get so caught up in my little soap opera in my head, I don't notice that my hand is going white and numb from clenching that striker so much. The striker is so important, has so much meaning and so symbolic of so many things are so central to my life that I'm really focused on it. But I don't notice that my hand is clenched and how much it hurts. As we get quiet, we start noticing how we're relating, how we're um, <clears throat> involved with our concerns. And it's how we're involved in our concerns which is one of the great keys to finding freedom from the ending of suffering. And so I, here I can finally notice, oh, wow, I'm holding this tight. Maybe I can let go. Maybe I don't have to hold it so tight. Maybe I don't have to hold it at all. I can put it down. I don't need it. And maybe I am not wise about all the things that the striker means, but slowly I get wise to, I don't have to, you know, have my hand go numb. I can let go. I don't have to, the cost is too much holding on so tight. So one of the things that, that uh, one of the important areas of seeing things as they are is to be, will, be able to slow down <clears throat> or open up or to notice how we are relating to our experience, how we relate relating to our concerns, which is often invisible <clears throat> because our concerns are so important. And this is to open up to the experience of what tradition calls the Four Noble Truths. And one of the key ways of understanding the, how things are is not to understand all of reality, but rather to understand how we relate to reality. You know something about everything if you know about how you relate to everything. And so uh, to be able to notice when you are clinging, resisting, grasping, reaching out, closing down, all these ways that we relate that are cause of suffering is part of learning to see things as they are. Because then we can do something about it. We can be compassionate towards it. 
we can maybe relax it, we can maybe uh, release the fist that's grasping and just kind of be at ease. So part of the, it's a very, so very important part of the functions of meditation, concentration, mindfulness, is to come to the place where it's almost natural to begin looking, noticing how, what we're doing about our concerns, how we relate to them, and to begin to release that great holding that we have. As we slow down and start to separate out all the big jumble of our experience, we don't just see <clears throat> that we're clinging and grasping, but we start learning something about, um, we start seeing other things in greater clarity. So, you know, here on this wonderful altars here, we have these big bouquet of flowers. It's a little bit of a Western American, I think, kind of idea that, uh, you know, beautiful flowers are in a big bouquet. You know, big, and that's how, you know, and they're all kind of jumbled together there and they all kind of make this nice kind of whole, all the flowers together. In Japan, <clears throat> the, uh, often the idea of a beautiful flower arrangement has just one flower in it. And they even have little uh, alcoves in some of the in some of the buildings and houses that are uh, that are specifically meant for that little vase with a single flower. Sometimes there's a scroll behind it, and um, and the idea being that uh, you see something in its singularity and it stands out. You see see its suchness. You see its specialness. You see just just a thing in and of itself stands out in the highlight when you have that one thing all by itself. So I don't know if this works, but you know, there's a little base and a flower, just a flower, right? And it's very different to kind of appreciate the flower and its singleness, its uniqueness, its specialness, just by itself, the arising, the emergence of the flower as it is, than it is to have this you know, big bouquets where the individual kind of gets lost in it. And um, so that's nice. Um, but then, as some of you know from this thing exercise I've done before, uh, you can have uh, a flower like this, single flower. But then you can do something very interesting, and uh, you can uh, bring in another flower. And now we have now we can say something we couldn't say before. We can say that in my right hand is the small flower. In the left hand is the big flower. Small, big. Simple, right? But watch the magic. And you can even see how the sleight of hand works. This is the small one, this is the big one, right? (laughs) It's a little sad, but... (laughs) So... Now, what was big, what was small, is now the big one, right? And now we have another one, which is a small one. Did you see the magic, or should I show you how I do it, the trick? <laughs> small, big. So, so what? What's the big deal? The big deal is that many, many of the ways that people suffer have to do with comparative thinking. We don't allow ourselves to just be our suchness, to be as we are in the moment, the uniqueness of this moment, the uniqueness of who we are right now. But uh, we are not just comparing it to all kinds of things, but we're also grasping to those thoughts, grasping to those ideas, living in them as if they're important, believing them, investing in them. So we do it with ourselves, right? You know, you're a flower, you're this 
symbolically, but then we compare ourselves with others. You know, I used to, when I was a kid, 13, 14 or something, I was concerned about my hairline. And, uh, you know, thank you. And, uh, <clears throat> and uh, I used to sit in school with my fingers measuring my hairline <clears throat> to make sure it didn't recede. Because I have to go, and uh, I can tell you it hasn't. But, uh, you, know, it's, you know, it has to do with, you know, what was, you know, 13, you know, it's so important how I am with other people and comparative thinking and is it, my hairline is too, you know, my forehead is too big, it's too small, it's too wide, it's too small, it's too narrow, it's too, all this too, you know, we have, it's all, that all belongs to the world of comparative thoughts. And so we have all these ideas that we compare ourselves to. We have ideas of, we have other people. And, you know, as some of you know, that uh, over the decades, the trends of what a beautiful person is changes. And so you happen to be born in the wrong decade or the right decade for your type. It's not like you're beautiful or not beautiful. It's just like, you know, you're what you are. But if you're born in one decade, then you're kind of, you're compared to the standard of that decade. If you're born in a different decade, you know, or different cultures. And so there's all this comparison going on. Or we compare ourselves to how we were in the past. We compare ourselves to ideals, how we should be, or what we think we're going to be in the future. Or we compare this moment to other moments. Or we compare, you know, all this comparative thinking going on. Comparative thinking is a useful tool for human beings, but it's also, it also causes a tremendous amount of suffering. And so part of seeing things as they are is to begin seeing the operation of thoughts judgments, interpretations, ideas of what's there. And to see that some of the things that we live in, some of the, we live in this ocean of comparisons and interpretations and judgments of how things are. Some of them which are, you know, I mean, it's certainly valid to say that this is the small flower and this is the big flower, but it's not inherent in the flower to be big or small. The flower is just a flower. And so we are just ourselves. And we don't, inherently, who are you? Inherently, is it necessary to do the comparative game? Is it necessary to judge? Judging, interpreting, might interfere with the beautiful process of riding, riding the wave of this present moment becoming into the future. Every moment is this wave, something new is emerging. Get out of the way, ride the waves, discover what it is. So you're a flower. Here's a poem, from anonymous poem from Japan. <clears throat> the world is a flower. Enlightened beings are flowers. All phenomena are flowers. Red flowers, white flowers, green flowers, yellow flowers, black flowers. All the different kinds of colors of flowers. All the different kinds of loves shining forth. Life unfolds from life and returns to life. Such an immense universe, so many beings, each a flower. Flowers of gratitude, flowers of sorrow, flowers of suffering, flowers of joy, Laughter's flowers, 
Angers flowers, each connected to the others and each making the others grow. When our real mind's eye opens this world of flowers, all beings shine. Music echoes through mountains and oceans. One's world becomes the world of millions. The individual becomes the human race. All lives become the individual, billions of mirrors all reflecting each other. There is death and there is life, and there is no death and no life. There is changing life, there is unchanging life. Flowers change color moment by moment. Such a vivid world, such a bright you. You were born out of these flowers. You gave birth to these flowers. You have no beginning and no ending. You are bottomless and limitless, even as you are infinitesimal dust. You are a flower. You are love. All beings shine out of their uniqueness. <clears throat> All melt into the oneness of colors. You are one. You are many. Only one moment. Only one unique place. Only the, only the unique you. Besides you, there is nothing. You dance, appearing in all. You came from peace and you return to peace. You stay nowhere. You are nowhere attached. You occupy everything. You occupy nothing. You are the becoming of indescribable change. You are love. You are the flower. So the flower here represents everything, but it represents everything in its in its suchness, in its thusness. Because to say good flower, bad flower, wrong flower, right flower, those are all not inherent in the flower. The flower just is. And so slowly we begin to kind of, as we sit and get quiet and get familiar with how our mind works, what goes on, we slowly become sensitive and aware of the tremendous role that thoughts and stories and interpretations and fantasy has in kind of how we see reality. And one of the ways in which all this process works is to build up a sense of self, self-concept, self-identity, who we think we are. And much of the time we live in uh, projections, ideas. We hold on to ideas of who we are as opposed to allowing who we are emerge. So in Zen, where they appreciate the emergence, the self is not, there's no real permanent self, but what the self is, is constantly emerging. And you discover who you are in the emerging. If you go to a, uh, to a Zen student while they're sweeping the courtyard, temple courtyard, and ask them, who are you? They'll just keep sweeping. And that's the answer. They're, they're just, that's who they are at that moment. They're sweeping, they're a sweeper. And then at a different time, you ask them who they are and, and they'll basically, they're, they're, they're discovering for themselves who they are in the activity of the moment, in the response of the moment. And it's kind of scary to not move forward into the world, not live in the world, holding on to a concept or not defending ourselves and being something all the time. <clears throat> Even some of the painful 
things, the ways in which we view ourselves, sometimes are so familiar and so are such a safety net that it's scary to let go of it. It's scary to step forward without holding on to self. And um, after some years of doing Buddhist practice, <clears throat> I became very acutely aware of how much I was involved in uh, building up, defending, um, conveying, convincing other people of who I, who I am, my self-concept. And it seemed like there's all this inner drama about the self, me, myself, and mine. And um, at some point I saw it so clearly and I saw, you know, this is not really true and it's not really serving me. It's, it felt, I saw it so clearly, it felt like that what was being asked of me, what was kind of the, they're the, almost like being asked of me in the moment just by reality, was to put it down, step forward without it. And to me, it was kind of like stepping over the edge of a cliff. You know, nothing's going to hold me up. You know, if I don't have that, you know, don't know who I am and don't try to hold on to something, then I'll step over that cliff. And maybe I wasn't ready to step yet. Because part of what was going on in those early years of practice was at the same time developing a stronger sense of self, a stronger sense of my capacity and honesty and self-awareness and, and um, patience and a variety of kinds of strengths. So as I became a stronger person, it became more possible to step off that edge. And um, <clears throat> so it might seem kind of silly now, but I was afraid. And, um, and that's not silly, that's, that's serious. And, um, and so I was afraid. I knew what I had to do, but I was afraid to take that step. So I thought, I need a ritual and, uh, to help me. So I was flying to Japan to practice in the monasteries in Japan. <clears throat> and I said, okay, crossing the international dateline. That's my ritual. When I cross that date line, I'm going to let go. <laughs> and um, I can't say that it worked <laughs> brilliantly, but I think it kind of, you know, sometimes if you, if you put the little toe across the line a little bit, then it's easier to follow. So the date line function is a little, like, I kind of, kind of dare to go across briefly for a moment. And then that from there, from then on, there's just an ongoing process of letting go, letting go of what I was afraid to let go of. It was a process, you know, it wasn't something I could do all at once. So this Japanese poem talks about, you know, uses the flower. The Buddha, who sometimes talked just more straightforwardly, uh, <clears throat> refers to kind of a similar thing, maybe indirectly this way. Uh, we talked about um, the various ways you can think that are unproductive, not useful, not wise. And how does a person attend unwisely? By having the following kinds of thoughts. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having been what? What did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what? What shall I become in the future? Or else, 
a person is inwardly perplexed about the present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? What's left? So, um, you know, so many of us, you know, we, ha- we, are, we are unique in the moment of becoming, but we, we compare ourselves to, we think in terms of who we were in the past, stories, events, everything in the past, or we think about what we're going to be in the future, or, we, or we're all concerned about who am I now? The whole I thing is a big enterprise, probably you've noticed this. Um, so what's the alternative? For the Buddha, the alternative, which is kind of one of the, as I said earlier, one of the primary ways in which we think, see things as they are, is to notice um, uh, not who we are, but notice how we cling, how we grasp, how we crave. And that's, this, he describes it more particularly as the seeing the Four Noble Truths. It's taking the time to notice where the dissatisfaction is, where the distress is, where the stress is <clears throat> in our life. And then noticing, because the mind is hopefully quiet and calm enough, noticing <clears throat> the grasping, the holding to what's going on, and the letting go of it. And, um, and this whole self thing, you know, it's so hard to let go, but you make much better music if you let go. So, you know, if, if I, if I, um, Kind of like when I have a concept of who I need to be, who I am or who I am not, and hold on to these concepts, then it's kind of like like this. But if you let go of needing to be anything, let go of concepts, let go of the judgments, the interpretations, the memories that drag us down, the fears of the future, and just be willing to kind of, you know, just let, let yourself just be in the present moment, with the present moment emerging, just letting it be, then there's a much better chance that you'll make music, something beautiful. But as soon as you grab onto it, it stops. <clears throat> so what, what the bell is, what you are, is not that important. What's important is that you don't interfere with it, don't stop it. So that's why the Buddhist, over and over again, the Buddhist emphasis is, look at how you're stopping the ringing, how you're stopping, how you're you know, interfering with the emerging of the flower of this moment. So again, it has a lot to do with thoughts, judgments, interpretations, it has a lot to do with fears, desires, aversions, and has a lot to do with um, grasping and clinging, resistance, or how we're relating to what's going on. So then slowing down, quieting down. So we can start teasing us apart and start slowly to see how all this works, how the magic show works. And so we can not, so we can participate in a better way, in a more productive way. So we see our grasping, we see the thinking that involved. We begin to then see, see our life um, directly, not through the filter of our thoughts. And this is a big step very important step for mindfulness practice is to get somehow disenchanted with our thoughts, thinking process. Sometimes it's very useful, our thinking, but to become disenchanted that it's going to be the solution for everything. The only way to see and understand our life is to think our way, think about it. To see there's much more going on 
than thinking itself. And, um, and just because you can think about it doesn't mean that you understand it or see it clearly for what it is. So, so to learn to see separate from thinking is part of the task of knowledge and vision of things as they are. So here's an interesting, I think, exercise. Who are you when you don't have thoughts to tell you? Who are you when you don't answer the question with a thought? And is whatever answers, is it peaceful? If whatever that answer is, I mean, you're still breathing and alive, what is that answer? Or as the mind gets quieter, which it does occasionally maybe, who are you in the gap between your thoughts? Maybe you don't have a continuous monologue anymore, but there's a few seconds in between some of your sentences in your mind. What happens? Who are you in that gap? What's going on in that gap? What can you see? How do you experience reality in that gap, in that space? What's it like to feel and experience the breath, not through the filter of our thinking about it, but directly? When those gaps, when there's no thinking, and you're there with the breath, what's that like? What do we see? What do we experience? One of the reasons why this is important <clears throat> is that a lot of the solidity of our life comes because we how we think. We have concepts and ideas of how things are. And so those things tend to fix things into nouns, into, you know, this is how it is. That's why this idea of this is seeing things as they are is a misnomer. Because it's like, oh, now I know. We only know how things come to be in the moment, and then again, and then again. So to be willing to be present for things as they are in this moment, to, to, to be willing to open up and feel, not think, to see, not think, hear, the arising. And what happens to us, what happens to our relationship to thinking <clears throat> when you see the initial beginning of a thought? There's something very special in this insight practice that can happen when you are sensitive enough to notice when something arises. It wasn't there, and now it's there. So maybe you're going along just fine, and then a new thought arises. But you're right there to catch the new thought. Wow, it's a new thought. Very different relationship to those thoughts than if... Uh, a um, you know, thoughts arise all the time. They're a dime a dozen, you know, and um, and so then a thought arises. But you're just in the, in the middle of the thought. You don't even know that it's arisen. Kind of, it's like just one long monologue. It just goes on and on. And um, um, but if there's if you can actually be there for the arising of it, there's a possibility of a whole different relationship to it. It's possible to put a question behind it. It's possible to put the word just in front of it. Just a thought. It's possible to see it as just a thought. And the idea of seeing a thought just as a thought is very powerful because of the way that thinking kind of pulls us by our nose and tells us what's true and gets us to do all kinds of things. But you see, oh, just a thought arising. 
I don't have to do anything about it, I don't have to believe it, I don't have to not believe it, I don't have to reject it, I don't have to grab onto it. It's just a thought, look at that. So it's very powerful, for example, I'll give you an example of, of um, you know, if you see a stranger, and the stranger um, looks really scary for you, You know, you're walking along and suddenly you see the stranger and you see this thoughts arise, oh, that's a scary person. But you see the arising of that thought. And there's something about the arising of that moment of thought that gives you a little bit of a, of a wedge, an opening to say, well, maybe, maybe the person's dangerous, but I see this as a thought arising Maybe I should look more carefully. Maybe, maybe take a second look. So, oh no. Because, oh really, I think the reason this person looks scary is they look just like, you know, this person who was scary earlier in my life. Oh, you know, it's a little more complicated than just, you know, it has a lot to do with my own internal life. So we have all these judgments of people <clears throat> or situations of ourselves. But to see the arising of it what wasn't before and what is now, when you're really right there to watch it arise, you see it as a conditioned phenomena, you see it as something which is temporary, you see it as something that wasn't before. You know, oh, just I'll leave it alone. I don't have to do anything with it. I can qu- or I can question it or not believe it. And then the tradition says, if you also see the passing of that thought, and if you know that thoughts arise and they pass, and the stories we tell ourselves, the events that they, are are all kind of in this arising for a moment and passing ideas and images and visualizations that our inner mind makes. It's tremendously powerful to see it as just something arising and passing. It becomes ephemeral, it becomes uh, empty of permanence, empty of solidity. And it's empty of meaning, inherent meaning, except for what we grant it, what we give it if we believe it and engage in it. Some thoughts are worth engaging, but one of the great things about being on retreat, being sitting and meditating here, there's very little you need to think about. There's you know so little in this setting here. There's so little that can't just wait for later. This is one of the safest places to experiment with not investing in our thoughts and to begin shifting the relationship with our thinking. So can we be there right there to see the arising of it and the passing of it? Thoughts are actually rise and pass pretty quickly. I've coined a new word in English. Thoughting versus thinking. Thoughting is what the mind does, produces thoughts. Thinking is when we get involved in it. Let your mind thought. <laughs> Don't do the thinking. So you see the arising of a thought and the passing of it. As we begin slowing down enough to see that, then that phenomena also gets, uh, gets applied to seeing that other things arise and pass as well. The, uh, one of the most amazing things from my long retreats, I thought, was how often meals arose. 
Sometimes it seemed to me, sometimes it like took forever to get through one sitting. But sometimes I had the feeling that I was always going to a meal. <laughs> you know, I would sit and then it was time to go to a meal. I would sit and then I'd go to a meal. And meals arise and they pass. <clears throat> and, you know, some of us have had dramas around the meals. And we, don't even, and we don't remember what they were a week later or two weeks later, right? You know, it's like the moment they seem so important. They arise and they pass. All kinds of things arise and they pass. When I was in retreat, I became very interested for a while. The first moment each day <clears throat> that I noticed that I started getting tired. You know, can I catch that first moment? Catch the first little inkling of I'm getting tired. Now it's going to get more and more tired into the evening and until I go to bed. And some, some days I could kind of catch, oh yeah, there it is. And some days, oh, I missed it. I'm tired. <laughs> but the initial arising of things, you know, the initial arising of hunger, the initial arising of a sound. Sounds are neat because sounds often arise and they pass. But how do we relate to that arising and passing? Sometimes I've had a sound has occurred and it's passed and my mind lingers with it and react away long after it's over. <clears throat> Thinking, what was that? And should I write a note to the managers? And, you know, this was whatever, my story I have. But there's something very powerful the tradition says about staying right there, be so present in the emergent phenomena as this present moment moves, the wave of the present moment walks washes across the blank canvas of the future, to be right there to watch the arising of things and watch it arise and know that it passes. So seeing things as they are includes the seeing, being right there to notice this phenomena, whether it's the rising and passing of lunch, the rising and passing of a thought, or the rising and passing over and over again maybe of um, particular sensations in your body or particular emotions. The um, emotions that we have, you know, it's, it's a little bit, you know, it's very interesting that how fickle the mind is with our thoughts. It's kind of interesting to look and see, like if you had a, in a bad mood someday, pay very careful attention and see, is that bad mood solid and continuous? If we take the bird's eye view, it certainly feels that way. Oh, I'm in terrible, I'm in terrible shape. But if you really get in there, really pay attention to the, to the you know, the, emergent moment, moment by moment, I venture to guess that you might be generally in a bad mood, but you'll see it, it, just, it rises and passes. Rises and passes. You'll have thoughts about something or something will happen that's pleasant. You have for a moment some other kind of state and then it comes back, the other one. It's fascinating to watch the kaleidoscope and it's, it's liberating to ride the wave, the emerging wave, the movement of things arising and passing not to linger with what just happened. The image I like to think of is that of you go down to the edge of a river and it's beautifully flowing river and you appreciate the, the impermanence of the river. You can never step in the same river twice. Just appreciate that. Then you get a bucket and you scoop out some of the water in the bucket and you go around and show people and say, look, it's the river. You know, so that's kind of, we, we scoop out certain piece of, of the river of our life and we go around carrying it around and we're concerned with that. And then we miss the fact that we're, we miss the next moment, we miss the next arising. 
So to relax, to open up, to have the courage to kind of be present for the next emerging, the next, the next arising, see it arise and seeing it pass. And one of the reasons, another reason why it's so significant to see things this way, in, this, in the particularity of them, in the details of them, in the uniqueness of them, in the particular kind of uh, experience of the moment, arising and passing, <clears throat> is that uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to cling to something that's arising and passing. You know, it's, you know, it's going to pass anyway. Or it doesn't make sense to resist it, it's going to pass anyway. Let's just come and go. Not that rising and passing of things is the big goal of our practice, but rather something about seeing the rising and passing that helps the mind, the heart, begin to release its grip. To relax. It can't grasp anyway. Sometimes in, in, in strong meditation practice, sometimes it's like reality is like you know, you try to grab reality, it's like water that just goes through your hand. You can't, you know, hold on to the water, it just squeezes out. So to th- see things as they are, knowledge and vision of how things come to be. To have the willingness for a few moments to open, relax, to be receptive, to allow, to ride the wave of this moment, to become, the process of becoming, constant becoming, to not fixate as solid and fixed anything, but just show up for this. Let the past, let this becoming recede into the past as it does. Be fresh and ready for the next moment. Be willing again and again here. To notice how we cling and grasp. Notice how we relate to our concerns. Notice how we hold on to the striker so hard, not noticing how we hold because the striker is so important or what we point to is so important. And begin softening, relaxing the grip. Noticing how we cling to or are preoccupied with so many concerns about me, myself and mine. And to see that in a, in a direct, honest way. So we begin at least appreciating the possibility this is, that it's not really serving you very well to do it. This Buddhist practice that we're doing, it is not meant to diminish you in any way. You're not supposed to become a, less of a person by doing this practice. It's supposed to enhance you, empower you, Letting go of, of this clinging to self is not to make you into a, I don't know what, you know, just, just a blob, but to make you someone who's present and strong and available and, you know, engaged in a good way. but without any concept that we hold on to, without the need to prove ourselves or defend ourselves. Just here we are. So beautiful, the flower. You're a flower. Let yourself be the flower of suchness. Let yourself be. 
Start appreciating. See if you can notice when it feels right. See if you can notice the arising and passing of thoughts. See how see a thought that wasn't now is, and now it's gone. What wisdom comes from seeing the arising and passing of thoughts? Step back enough, not to be in the caught in the middle of the drama of particular thoughts you have, but step back and see it as a process of becoming and passing. What happens if you see the arising and passing of emotions? Or if you get really close, intuitive, close into emotions and see them as emerging, you'll see that emotions in very subtle, very subtle ways are also coming in and out of existence. Rising and passing, arising and passing. It's quite something to see. Sensations, sounds. And not that that's important, but what's important is how that teaches us something about clinging. We don't have to cling. And we don't have to take anything as myself to see that just they're rising. So we <clears throat> suffer, and then we have faith <clears throat> in a path to the end of suffering. It's good to have some delight and well-being or inspiration about this faith and this path. It's good to engage wholeheartedly enough, give yourself to it enough that some well-being and joy from, from the engagement occurs. It's good to relax, become tranquil. It's nice when there's happiness, some sense of well-being. And it helps when we kind of begin, moment, even momentarily, settle some of the agitation of the mind, open the mind up for the moment. And with those things as supports, it's much more, it's very productive or helpful to begin opening up being willing to look, be curious, discover things as they have come to be here, now. What is this? No two moments are ever the same. What is this? The moment, any moment that you're experiencing, you'll never experience again. What was this that just arose? What is this that's arising? What is this? What is this? So let's end with sitting quietly. And perhaps in the quiet of the sitting, <clears throat> you can ask yourself that question. This moment that'll never be again what is it? And don't answer it with a thought. Let it emerge and let it pass.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.